0: Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where you are. It occurs to me that this is our last Zoom event while we're on Mountain Standard Time. Well, actually, what happens is we stay on Mountain Standard Time all year long in Arizona, and everybody else shifts to daylight. But practically speaking, what that means is we're going to be on Pacific Daylight Time starting on Sunday. So, you know, Peter, this is the
1: hardest part of Zoom, is time zones. I know I'm already confused you just confused me but um yes I'm here on eastern standard time and it is dark
0: that's That's right right whereas it's beautifully brazing afternoon in Phoenix right now so anyway I'm really delighted to see Peter although I truly hope to see him live this year so I'm not giving up hope that maybe next year I'll actually get here
1: next year Barbara I need to come back it would be lovely I I love your bookstore and I love um Castelna, um, what was the hotel I stayed at? The Hotel Valley Hill. Ho. Oh, my God. I got to get back to Valley Hill. Well, you really do.
0: But what you really want to come back to is it's 72 degrees and sunny.
1: Yes, I want to come. Well, you know, it's funny is I went to L.A. last week for a little, um, to see friends and a little vacation and all that. And, you know, we brought the snow and the cold with us. So I can't, I can't get away from it this year.
0: Well, it's been a bizarre winter, um, and we had that last year. John Sanford called me the other night to complain that he went down to the Tucson Festival of Books early to play golf. <laughs> and was snowed out for the entire time. Wow. They wished he had gone the week after, but it's just been wildly unpredictable, which yeah. is also true of Peter's book. So that leads me on <laughs> an actual segue right here. It's yeah. Peter's book. So let me, for those who don't know Peter, let me just give you a little clue here. He's the New York Times bestselling author of eight previous novels, including The Kind Worth Killing, which is, in a way, an antecedent to this book. Yep. Um, he's the winner of the New England Society Book Award, a finalist for the British Crime Writers Association, Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award, which I think is a really cool award. Yeah. Um, eight Perfect Murders is maybe the book that, do you think it got the most attention because of the crafty nature of your plot?
1: Yeah, I think in some ways it did. Um, and I, I think also like booksellers loved it because it was about a bookseller and it was about books. So I think it got a lot of attention that way. I think in terms of like over time, uh, Worth Killing is the book that um, when I meet a fan, they say, oh, you know, like Kind Killing was the book that really got me um, into your book. So I think it's those two books, I think are the are the ones that people talk to me about the most.
0: So in fact, The Kind Worth Killing is the, this is as far as I can remember so far, the only book where you've had repeat characters. Is that true?
1: Yeah, so it's my ninth book and my first um, sequel. So everything previous has been a standalone. Um, although I've had little, maybe maybe I consider them part of the same universe because I've had little crossovers with characters. Um, I'm I'm calling Kineworth Saving, for lack of a better word, a semi sequel um, in the sense that it doesn't pick up directly on the plot line of Kineworth Killing, um, but it does pick up on two characters from Kineworth Killing. One is Henry Kimball, who um, was a police detective in Kineworth Killing, is now a private detective. Um, and the other is Lily Kintner, who, depending on um, how you feel about her, is either a villain, an anti hero or maybe the hero. So wow. I've heard all three.
0: No, I know. I think, you know, it's nice to have such ambiguity in a character and also ambiguity in her relationship with Henry,
1: right? Yes. Yeah, wow. so it was really fun. I mean, I just knew that I wanted, I, I, I mean, I knew I wanted to return to them character-wise without necessarily, I didn't feel like there was more to say on the original story, but I kind of came up with an idea for another story in them found a way to put them into it. Um, so so I'd like to say, I think I think the book would be best if you've read Kind, Worth Killing, but I think if you haven't read Kind, Worth Killing, you would be able to follow this book and um, it tells its own story.
0: Well, that's true. I mean, as you say, it's kind of a sequel. It's not a direct right. sequel. And right. after all, people's lives have really changed. Um, so talk to us about Henry, because you're right. He's had a, a real career change.
1: Yeah, so Henry, um, when we first met him in Kindworth of Killing as a police detective, um, but he's sort of an odd police detective. He's a little bit of a bookish guy. He really should have been a poet and not a um and not a detective. So in this this story, we get um we get two things about him. So we get where he's at now, which is he's lost his job as a Boston PD detective, and he's now a private detective, but we also learn a big chunk of his past history which is at one point in time, he did wanna be a poet and he was um, an English teacher in a high school. And there was this sort of horrible event that happened in his classroom um, involving, um, involving a gun and some violence. And one of, his, one of the things that happened to him in that moment is he kind of froze um, and it's haunted him ever since. And that's kind of what propelled him into, into the police feeling like he um, had failed in that moment. Um, so we find out where he's at now, and we find out um, that he has this past history. But this past history actually um, doesn't just um, come into the book as um, like it's it's more important to the book than you might know at first. So there's there's things that happen back then that reverberate into the story now, um, and that's and that's where the story picks up.
0: You know, in real life, there's been at least one police officer, I think it was in Texas, but I can't remember for sure, who did in fact kind of freeze. Um, Maybe more than one officer in a school shooting. Um, And, you know, that's a terrifying thing to have happen. Um, Well, and also we've had that weird situation in Virginia where the six-year-old brought a gun to school. And even though they sort of knew that he had the gun, um, you know, or at least there was a rumor that he had a gun and he'd been through, somehow or other, he still had the gun in time to shoot his teacher. People
1: always ask, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with this part, but you know, you're a mystery writer and people are asked like, do you, you, know, do you have anything in your life you're drawing on? Do you have involvement in in crime? Or do you know anyone who's a criminal? And I'm like, no, I, you know, I'm a writer. I live a very boring, placid life. though it's just the way I like it um but i always imagine that in the face of any kind of real danger i would be a pure coward um i don't i don't try and pretend that i i wouldn't be um so i i do empathize with the with the henry situation that he um that he didn't move and i you know and i've heard um from other accounts that there is you know in the face of someone pulling a pointing a gun at you or pointing a knife at you like there is like you know you go into a different mode of being where you're just frozen and like you cannot move you're paralyzed with fear um so and that's the type of characters i write like i'm not um you know i love a good jack reacher story but i don't write those i don't write about oh. the person the person who uh does, you know is is fearless in those situations
2: well,
0: you know, in real life, the argument is that you know it's great to arm the populace so that anybody who's in a situation like that can pull out their gun and take care of it, but it doesn't work that way very often. Yes, um, I
1: mean, where, yes, I, I agree with that. I, um, I think for for every maybe anecdotal story about some some good person with a gun, um, it's it's probably um someone gets hurt innocently with a gun in the house. I mean, I um. This was funny. I've been doing a little traveling. So I've just come back from LA. And, you know, now in the airports, they always tell you, you know, you see the sign, especially in certain parts of the country, like, don't forget, you can't travel with a gun. And I read this story recently that about 100 people per day have yeah. a gun pulled out of their bag at TSA. And, the, and it's not that they're trying to fly with their gun. It's that they forgot and they have a gun in their bag, um, which I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I would, I would hope that if you have a gun, you wouldn't forget.
0: Unfortunately, I think that there, people are way too casual. Um, many people are way too casual about it. In the same way, you know, now that marijuana is legal, there's um, a big uptick in children, you know, running across their parents' stash and, you know, yeah. ingesting it. Well, their it. parents'
1: stash is, is, looks like candy. Well, I mean it, it is a... candy. It is. It's <laughs> yummies, yeah. you know, so who can blame them? They're me? very popular, the edibles. Yeah, I do think it's a little... Um yeah so there's a i think there's a lot of er visits with little kids who've eaten um like a handful of uh gummy bears <laughs> even dogs
0: apparently they're oh some, that makes sense yep puppy poisonings too but my point is that people become accustomed to dangerous substances whether it's a gun or whether you know it's a gummy bear around children and as a result um there's a there's a big uptick in things that can go wrong. And the truth is, you know, if a person with a gun is not actually trained to use it and is in a dangerous situation, they're just as likely to kill a bystander as yeah. they are or shoot a bystander as a as a person. Anyway, so Mr. Kimball here um, joins the police. What propels him out of the police into being a private
1: eye? Well, so this is what's happened in the Conworth killing. And, um, if if you haven't well, read it. We don't it, want to spoil it, right? We don't want to spoil it too much, but the events of that book mean he gets kicked out of the police. Okay. Um, and he has, a, he has a run-in with Lily, and those two characters are the characters that I've sort of brought back together in this book. Um, mostly because I just like writing them, um, and uh, particularly Lily, who is, um, you know, like I said, and it's no spoiler to say she is a murderer because we find out in the second chapter of Kind Killing, that she's killed her first person at the age of 13. Um, she is not so much a serial killer as someone who, I think, doesn't mind killing people. So I think of her that way, like, um, she's not bothered by it, and if someone's sort of threatening her, she's willing to get rid of them. So she's kind of a fun character, right, for, for that reason. So she's sort of a disposal unit more than she is... I think of her as that way. I think, um, right, I mean, she's not... She's trying to mind her own business in her life. She's not out to kill a bunch of people, but she also has a strange sense of morality. I mean, I guess what you would say is that she has sociopathic tendencies, that killing a person to her is the equivalent of, say, swatting a fly, um, especially if she doesn't have a high opinion of that person. So as a writer, that kind of character is fun because you know, they don't have moral boundaries, so you can really have them do you know all sorts of interesting stuff so she'd be kind of a person interested
0: in the darwin award you know cleansing the gene pool um she's not impressed with um
1: the human the human race in general i would
0: say we're going to do an event after your event at the store tonight with rupert holmes whose book is called murder your employer and the thesis of it is that you know there are there are people that are making your life intolerable and even worse maybe making other people's lives intolerable and so it's a handy handbook about how to so lily would love it it's a handy handbook about you know how to get rid of these um obnoxious people and make right. the world a better place right
1: right i mean i think that's the I, I think i mean there's a number of this sort of character coming you know that are popular in, in books um i think the sort of the casual killer the convenient killer. Um because I do think it strikes a note with all of us that um wouldn't life be easier if we could just snap our fingers and make certain annoying people disappear. Yes. Um, and it so it, it has that element of like fantasy. But I, you know, um it's it's not it's it's a little more complicated than that, I would believe in real life. But I haven't heard of this Rupert Holmes book, but I'll check it out.
0: Yeah, well. You know, over the last few years, I have to admit that if I'd had that super ability, I probably would have <laughs> deployed it. So, so who, who can say? Anyway, one of the things I find really interesting about The Kind Worth Killing is that there are multiple points of view.
2: Yeah, so
0: Henry is a point of view. Lily is a point of yeah. view character. But there is a character called Joan, yeah. who in many ways is the heart of this book. Yeah. yeah. It it seems to me, Peter, that you're really interested in in the idea of um somebody, you know, the sort of adrenaline rush thing, you know, that somebody does something that produces so much dopamine or whatever that that they're bored by everything else and and have to keep returning to it, which you, you hear about a lot with um, you know, professional soldiers or you know, people who've been yeah in combat and all, but you've got Joan as a bored teenager in a kind of crummy resort uh, with time on her hands and not enjoying her family and whatever. And that's where this book really takes off.
1: Yeah, so I um, the original spark of this book um, started with these teenage characters at a resort um, before I ever put Henry and Lillian involved in the story. I won't go into details, but I had stayed at a, um, I was doing a a favor for a friend and dropping off some of his kids at summer camp in Maine and then picking them up. And in the meantime, I stayed at this old resort hotel, which will remain nameless, that um, was like this kind of once classic hotel that was now run down, Um, but they still did the big buffet dinner. Um, They had a much, they had a very old clientele because I think it was cheap. Um, but it was it was just on its way out. It was um, not the greatest place, and I saw like a couple of teenagers there who looked, of course, like they'd been sentenced to um, a prisoner of war camp um, for the week by whoever had brought them there. Um, and so I, you know, I just started musing on this idea of um, a kind of uh, boring resort where two teenagers would meet who wouldn't normally be friends in real life, and that's the case with this story. Joan is a very popular um, high school girl. She's a star gymnast. Um, She's maybe a little bit of a mean girl. Um, Richard goes to her school as well. They've never spoken, and he is kind of a classic recluse, um, bookish, keeps to himself. They meet at this resort. They, of course, recognize one another, and they form this friendship, um, partly because they have a mutual enemy. And um, and and it's also a secret friendship, but something about the two of them coming together without a lot of adult su- supervision, kind of like their bad influence on one another, and um, what they get up to at that resort is the sort of first murderous sequence in the book, um, and then they go on to maintain a friendship over the years um, in secret. And uh, you're right. I think Joan is someone who, she always remembers this. Yeah, she need, she needs something going on in her life, um, some sort of action or whatever. And and Richard's just kind of along for the ride, um, in his own way. So that was the that's the story I wanted to tell. Um, and whenever I'm thinking of a story, I'm thinking, can this be a novel? Um, yeah. Is this a short story? Is this a novella? Can I get a whole book out of this? And um, the point at which I realized that I could pull, pull Henry and Lily into the story was the point at which I was I was able to say, "Oh yeah, I think this is this is a novel, and I can pull a whole story out of this."
0: Well, it's a complex story, um, as again with a number of
1: characters. Um, who's Richard? Um, Richard is. I mean, what's interesting is I think there are a lot of Richards in the world. He is um, a loner. He's lives in a fantasy world um he feels unseen he's sort of he's smart um but socially inept. um you know, I think we all had that kid in high school and and now we think of you know warning signs on um gun violence or or kids who might snap um and you know, I'm not sure he he would have been done bad things had he not met Joan right. who sort of spurred him so I think. Um, you know, I think, you know, teenagers, that's a tough time. And, and um, if you don't have a good home life or, you know, bad things can happen. I always think of, um, I think of Stephen King. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but his, I mean, his first novel that he wrote, which was later published under Richard Bachman's name was called Rage. And it was about a teenage boy and, um, and in high school, who takes his class hostage with a gun? Um, it was very sort of um, prescient at the time because you know the, these sort of events hadn't happened when he first wrote this, which was the early 70s. But he, that's who he was. He was an awkward, book, bookish nerd, and he got bullied in high school. And I often think because he was able to write that book about that, that meant. It it never happened in reality. He found a different outlet for it, um, for whatever rage that he felt as a teenager and then went on to have this, you know, obviously amazing career as a writer, um, but it could have gone a different way, right? I mean, um, I I think that there's a tipping point. So um, I think of Richard as one of those people on the tipping point and uh, meeting Joan was, Probably an exciting thing for him and a and a bad thing for the future of his his so, life.
0: You know, there there are a lot of cases, real life cases about. I think it's called folie à deux, basically, yeah. um, which is a French term for uh, madness that basically takes two people. Um, and yeah. you know, you can look back at Myra hinley and whoever I can't remember who her partner was, the the twin serial killers in. Yeah. In England or isn't it Charles Starkweather? And I can't think of the name of the woman that was involved with him, but it it seems, you know, that if it's an unfortunate collision of two different characters, one of whom is usually more dominant than the other, and you know, sucks this other person into the orbit, but they um, enable each other or spur each other on in ways that if if left to themselves, they probably wouldn't but it also it also can take and and i think you do this well in your book kids in high school are so vulnerable and nobody really knows how to cope with a bully yeah. and you know and and i don't you know as grown ups i think it's hard for us to remember back about just how defenseless kids who are just forming their their personalities and are so vulnerable um and you know a bully can just be you know, like an atom bomb in their
1: lives sure um yeah i i think it is a really vulnerable time um i'm gonna the, what you said about folio do is is so interesting because i um i've been thinking a lot about that partly because of my book but also partly because i just wrote a piece for the guardian on criminal duos mm-hmm. um in fiction um there's less of them than you'd think you know um the other example would be Leopold and Loeb,
2: the yeah. two um,
1: college students in the 1920s, and um, there was a, a novel written about them called Compulsion. Um, but I love this idea of these two of two people coming together, and, and right, they're more dangerous together. They spur each other on. I mean, absolutely
0: been- true with Leopold and Loeb. I mean, it really was a thrill kill. Um, but there's also a certain element of um, of being convinced they can get away with it you know the my actually my a relative of my husband was the intended target for leopold and Loeb. oh wow got sick and didn't go to school on the day they decided to act so that the boy was killed was actually not the original target oh my god it it happened Um, in chicago um you know and um among the jewish community in chicago and um and that that's reverberated in the Rosenwald family for, you know, for years thinking about oh, really? you know, this child, you know, it's kind of like the person that didn't get on the plane because work called or something and then the plane went down, you know, how, how, you know, we can be just a tiny act away from some calamity that we, yeah. you know, They killed a younger boy in their community, right? It was a school thing, yeah, and instead of, instead of the boy they had decided they could get away with killing, they picked on a younger one because, as I said, the older one stayed home sick that day, not from any knowledge that, you know he was targeted or anything. He just happened to get sick. Yeah. Um, and you know, but it definitely was this real kill that these two kids, and you know, we know about Ann Perry and her um, yeah. her friend.
1: I was going to bring that up. Heaven, that made the movie called Heavenly Creatures, but yes, Empire, I
0: right. And, and that, I don't know exactly how one can characterize that. It wasn't a thrill kill. They wanted to do something and decided they wanted to travel together to when one of their fathers was being relocated to a different continent from New Zealand to South Africa and felt that the mother, the woman they eventually killed was in their way and if they could just, you know, remove her. Um, but then there was kind of a frenzy that clearly occurred in the actual act because I think, I think they, this woman was hit something like 48 times with a brick. I mean, it was a really ugly killing once it got started. That's
1: a good example of, you know, obviously um, one of them has gone on to have a productive uh, life and, you know, there is a sort of madness that can take over um and I fully do, do, as I right. said. And they had a really rich fantasy life, the two of them, um, where they sort of imagined um between yeah, they were they were almost sort of like they they weren't in reality when they were together. They were in a kind of weird fantasy life. Um beyond reality well, i
2: think
0: i think that's true i think that does happen that they kind of go into an altered state where somehow right. they imagine that they can do these acts and not get caught but the instigating incident was there was the threat of separation whereas yes. in your book it, the bully you know is the thing that um yeah, yeah, yeah. a desire to you
1: and know, the thrill of doing something morally transgressive i think is um it's you know, at that age, can like can we get away with this? and and also the maybe the feeling at that age that you will get away with this that that um in the same way at that age you feel like you'll never grow old. I mean, there's a sort of um, you know, immortality um, indestructible feeling among some teenagers. I'm not sure I had it myself, but um, but yeah, you know that that is pretty, pretty common, I
0: think I think about we um. Have had to have a, a dog that was part of our staff, so to speak, came to work and all, and he had to be put down, and it was really hard on his first time pet owner. But you know, I reminded him that that animals, dogs at least, but I think all animals don't really have any sense of immortality.
2: Yeah, I they, don't think so. they
0: don't know when mortality, you're right. Right, they don't know that, uh, or since yeah, right of mortality, I should say. So they don't know that you know that last trip to the vet or whatever it is, right. how it's going to end. So they they may be frightened by being in a strange place, but they're not frightened at the prospect of dying because they don't really understand it, and I and I think that's very true. of you know teenagers and you know remember Audie murphy the you know incredibly decorated world war ii he was like a, he was a kid you know he was like 17 or 18 and probably never even imagined that you know he could be killed there was no fear right yeah which um or sense of fear which i think is yeah. um a major thing i can't find it but you had a line in the book somewhere where joan actually says that that she you know her her regular life is boring and she can't really move beyond the idea of recreating the thrill
1: I think um I'm not saying it will. yeah I think she talks about um and she has a little so there's a couple things going on with Joan one is she feels overshadowed because she has a sister who had childhood leukemia um that took away attention from her um, she has an event where early in her life she hides from her parents in the in closet in their house to sort of make her parents pay for not paying attention to her. And she falls asleep in there and the parents pa- can't find her and call the police. Um, and eventually they find her in this closet and she remembers it's this sort of crucial moment for her where she's like, she feels incredibly seen. And she feels the excitement of everyone being so happy she's alive. And she feels the sort of glow of people looking on her. so um she she's repeatedly seeking out um that feeling again and again, but she gets it in these pretty transgressive ways. so i I do think she was interesting that way. she's she she kind of escalates as the book goes on. She gets kind of worse and worse. um but i but yeah, I think it's just this need to um Right, she's bored. She's bored by regular life, by comfortable life, and yeah. she's always, you know, she's looking for a certain kind of attention.
0: So, um, how did Joan and Henry come together? Because it's it's a professional transaction at the beginning. Yeah, so, no, it like, isn't. It it is now a professional one, but they did have an earlier connection.
1: Um. So the book this is my ninth book it's my first book with really a private detective as a major character and I thought um you know I gotta open this book the way all private detective novels should open which is a client walks into an office right um and so that's how I opened the book Henry's in his office and um in walks Joan she's an adult now um with a pretty simple case which is she's hoping he'll uh he'll trail her husband to discover that he's having an affair um, but of course when she walks in she says you know I know you already because you were my teacher in high school um, many years ago not that many years ago but 15 years ago or something like that and um, and that of course brings up the high school memories that Henry has and he takes on this case and it seems like a, a, a simple case um, to trail her husband but it's sort of anything but and that's what reintroduces Joan into Henry's orbit um, and makes him begin to wonder if uh, there's more sinister intent with what's going on with her. Um, and he, And at the same time, he's remembering what she had been like in high school and going back to that time. Um, and it all kind of ties together.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting story structure because you have to go back in time and then you have to move the present time forward. So did you have to sort of map that out
1: so you didn't mess it up? Um, I, I do a little mapping. I Sometimes I do the mapping post book and then find out I did mess it up and I have to go back and fix it. I'm not, a, I'm not one of those people with um, uh, notes, um, sticky notes on my uh, wall with every little plot point um but yeah you know as I go along I kind of put it down and then sometimes what I'll do is I'll open up a document and start putting in dates of when things happen what year um you know to know the exact year they were at the resort how old they were and try and get all that straight um you know to save my eventual copy editor the misery of discovering (laughs) that my book doesn't work which has happened in the past I mean you know you can always fix it but you don't want to make them too unhappy.
0: No, but you do like complicated plots and complicated plot structures. So it is a lot more work than you know. Many PI stories are pretty straightforward. You know, they start with, as you say, the client coming in the door, and then they just kind of move along. Um, yeah. But your your stories don't don't work that way. How did you like having a private eye as your
1: as your lead? I love it because it's a great way to start a book. I mean, you know, you want to get into it, right? So I, I do, I always love that, um, you know, it's a client, it's a detective, you need to find something out. Often it, often it is, feels like something simple. And of course, um, private eye novels, a little bit like It's too, but in a different way. Are, are interesting things because they move forward, right? The private detective begins interviewing people or stirring up things or following people. And as the detective moves along, what we find out is more and more of what's already happened. So we find out about the past, not always, but often. Right. Um, and and then, you know, I'm thinking in particular, like in a Ross McDonald, it's, it's often like a family dynamic that winds up being like incredibly complex and filled with trauma. Um, it it blossoms. In other words, it, what looks like a small problem becomes a big deal, and it's part of a bigger picture. Um, so I I love um, I love that idea, and I also um, you know private detectives are nice and simple as detectives go. You know they don't have to follow all the police rules. They don't have to report. They don't have to do all the paper. You know you don't have to like. Do it in the exact police way that things are done. You you know they're a little more uh, free to to lie to get what they want to break into places. You know there's a lot of freedom with them. There's a reason they are a popular um, fictional uh, character. I would say
0: many studies um, and my own belief is that the private detective really sort of sprung out of the western hero. You know when the frontier closed. And I mean, it's not coincidence that Hammett and Chandler and so forth were in California at the end of the frontier and wanted to write about that kind of, you know, John Wayne hero um, or, you know, Alan Ladd and Shane, the guy who comes into town and cleans it up and whose loyalty Uh, is really not to the law uh, or not to the state. The loyalty is really to the person in trouble they're trying to they've been hired to help or want to right. help um yeah i mean really you know you mentioned reacher earlier i mean reacher is shane you know in modern form yeah. you know he gets on a bus he rides into town romances the girl cleans up the town and then he rides away yeah, while a yeah. little kid in the background brandon will screams, yeah. shane shane you know he just doesn't have a horse he has a bus, right Yeah, I mean, and it's so supremely ironic that it's a British author, writing The quintessential American Western. So, but anyway. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think the private detective novel, as you say, it's more, you can be more, you can be freer in the way the investigation goes if you're not constrained by the police department at all. But on the other hand, very few people become private detectives just out of the blue with no kind of training. Many right. of them in fact, are um, former police officers or perhaps former military or something. But I mean, they do need a skill set that the average person doesn't acquire. And today they really need to be licensed. You know, I mean, if they're going to hang out a shingle and say, hey, I'm a private detective,
1: you can't just do that on a whim. And I think in reality today, what what a lot of private detective agencies do is um, it's a lot of background checks for corporations. I mean, you're really just uh, it's a lot of employee. I have a friend of a friend kind of who's a detective, and that's what he spends his day doing. He's not out trailing um uh, you know interesting uh blondes around um San Francisco like that's you know, true
0: well, some of um, them are some of them are hired by lawyers to do investigating defense attorneys, um not yeah. prosecutors. And then they become part of the defense attorney team and they get, you know, employee, I mean, attorney. It's a lot of that. It's a I lot of privilege. Yeah, you see all of that. Um, and in um, here in Arizona, where so many people are have moved in and nobody knows who their background is, a lot of times it's personal checks. And I think the rise of dating apps has really mm-hmm. um, probably fostered a fair amount of private detective work because you meet somebody on you know tinder or something you have you don't have any idea who they really are and so
2: that's
1: interesting that yeah that's that's there's an interesting book to be written there too about um about yeah dating apps and and how yeah you don't know you
0: don't know no, no no, 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 I mean, it's all the way from pedophiles luring kids to yeah. you know, um, I mean, it's a hunting ground, let's face it, um yeah so i I mean, there are lots of things that private detectives can do, but using shoe leather is probably less yeah. you know the the old Robert Parker uh, or Ross McDonald, for that matter with yeah. Lou Archer is not as prevalent today as you might as you might think, but yeah. you know, the classic private detective possible exception of lou archer who was actually kind of always in the background what was it (laughs) ross mcdonald said something about lou archer like if he turned sideways you couldn't even see him in the book yeah Um, yeah. you know he was more just a kind of agent for telling the story but in so many private investigator novels there's a certain amount of damage in the investigator you know more interesting i mean he can be you know he could be an alcoholic he can i mean you know so with Henry, he does have, in fact, this background that you gave him and the kind worth killing. No, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, and the kind worth killing as opposed to the kind where say, I keep screwing up these titles. I'm really that's sorry. Okay. No, no, that's <laughs> fine. They they do share three out of their four words. So yeah. But anyway, so Henry Henry falls into that sort of classic mode, right? That you know, he has a um checkered career that has brought him to um Hanging out his shingle and being a private eye, not notably successful. Yeah, I mean, you know some private eye firms are like law firms. You know, I mean, they have multiple offices and they have multiple employees, and you know, it's like a
1: big corporation, right? He's yeah. he's more the old school, like a small corner office. um Spencer, of course, is you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. My mom read the Robert Parker Spencer novels when I was. Um, young and I started reading them young and I loved them because well one they're great books and two they were sort of in my neighborhood and um I loved re- reading about them but he was um yeah I mean he was sort of the classic just a tiny office and a client would come in and you know he had some baggage but he also he was the he was the knight right he was the moral knight who regardless of who had hired him would try, in the end try and do the right thing
0: Absolutely. Now, Spencer Spencer's more in that you know Western hero mold, but you know back in the '90s, Peter, before you got into this, but I opened the store in 19, the Poison Pen in 1989, so I got to ride the whole wave, um, which is when the woman private investigator took over. The woman sleuth movement the was really the case. '90s. Hmm?
2: Sarah
0: Parretsky. Sarah Parretsky, Sue Grafton, Marshall. Sue Graffin, yeah um Jan Burke there was just a whole raft of women who wrote um and and part of it I think was because women there were fewer women as active serving police officers in the murder squad there were women in the police but they weren't necessarily on the really dangerous runs and so if you had a private eye a woman as an investigator you could you know put her into all those situations but what what I thought got a little tiresome wasn't true of Kinsey, um, and not really of the I. Warshawski, but many of them, because they're always clones in a really big genre, yeah. wound up having, you know, cuffs or similar as boyfriends because private investigators don't have a power of arrest. So if you really want, you know, some guy to work a case and eventually bring someone to justice, they can't do right. it
1: right you can't have that big moment right
0: Um, no you can't and you know people don't think about this but in the golden age lord peter whimsy could afford to investigate on his own because he was you know son of a duke and he had a lot of money but everybody sort of (laughs) forgets that his brother-in-law henry Parker was the actual cop
2: right just
0: like miss marple's nephew was the actual cop or we had Lestrade for Sherlock Holmes, or you know, we had, I'm trying to remember some of the anyway, even in the golden age when you had so many private sleuths,
2: yeah. um,
0: they in they had some kind of basically on call. Um, oh. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you do have to sort of make that bridge if you're expecting your your private eye to see the case through and wind up arresting the criminal so do you find that that's something you can avoid or something
1: you're working towards well this book takes different turns and i and um you know it's interesting if i thought of um you know and i'm not sure kind of what, what i'm going to do next but i mean if if i were to make henry for instance a recurring character i think he does have a connection um, back in the Boston PD, and her name's Roberta James. Um, she's briefly mentioned in this book. Um, she, um, you know, we we talked at the very beginning of this talk about how I would never really written a sequel, which is true. Um, I do, however, Roberta James, um, that detective, um, is in my first book, Girl with a Clock for a Heart. She's in Kind Worth Killing. She's in Her Every Fear, my third book, um, and she's briefly mentioned in this. So he would have someone who he can call on um, either to make an arrest or call on to just help him out with information. So he does have that connection. Because you're right, I, I I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but but I, I knew that she was important at one point in this book that he would make a call to her. So um, yeah. know, it
2: makes
1: That's- sense
0: that's how it works it really does Um, i I mean a repeating private eye probably is more realistic than a repeating bookseller
1: yeah uh yeah it's easier to get them in i mean you know obviously um (laughs) other writers have done it with amateur sleuths i mean we all know miss marple just you know if she if she goes to visit someone for the weekend it's not going to end well um but, you know, and you just accept that as a reader, that certain amateur sleuths are always stumbling upon a crime. But um, it's not always realistic.
0: No, it's not realistic. At least she traveled around. The <laughs> most unrealistic amateur sleuths ones are the ones where they live in a small town on the banks of Lake Huron and support themselves with a chocolate shop or something, you know. That right, and thing. people die in their town like every three weeks, right? Yeah. Miss Marple was mobile. And in fact, I'm going to put in a, a plug here. There's a fabulous collection uh, called Marple of modern crime writers who have updated Miss Marple. They have given her, Jade Marple, they have actually given her roles. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I have that book somewhere. I'm listen, looking. Around. You know what? D- read it. It really is wonderful. And one of those surprising ones is the success with which i can't remember which author in it brings miss marple to new york i mean you know you would not think it would work but it absolutely does
1: i'm trying to think so in the original christie's um the one international one i know for sure is the caribbean mystery she goes to the um i think a sort of a fake island probably jamaica based on jamaica but um and it solves a crime there. But yeah, yeah, there is one in New York in that story. There is, it really,
0: it's really a super book. It it made the bestseller list, which is very rare for any kind of story collection or anthology, you almost never see that, but it really deserved it. So if you're thinking about more private eye things, I highly recommend you read Marple first and see the rich diversity of forms that private eye novel can take. That was a great idea for that anthology. Yes, it was. They got some good writers for that, too, yeah. Very good writers. So let's call Jacob up and see if there are any comments from watchers. that He has to appear on the screen. Meantime, I will say that Peter has thoughtfully signed many copies of The Kind We're Saving, which we now have on sale at the Poison Pen. It's not too late to order one. So, Jacob...
2: Hey Peter, uh, there are a few questions uh, from Facebook and YouTube. Uh, the first one comes from Fred. Uh, hello Peter, I was wondering if you had any writers that really inspire, inspired you, and
1: who do you like to read? Um, I'll, I'll do the sort of the, the the older sort of last century writers, which is wh- where I really get most of my inspiration. Um, one is Ruth Rendell, um, who kind of um, she wrote a lot of books english english writer died about 10 years ago i think um she really moved between whodunits and psychological thrillers and she often merged them um i think she does twisted dark characters really well while at the same time like being right within the world of like a classic whodunit with clues and all that and she's just someone i go back to quite a bit i don't i you know i i don't think i've ever read i have my favorites of hers of course but i don't think i've read a, A bad book by her um so i love her um these days i really i'm enjoying anthony horowitz's sort of fun classic um whodunits both the magpie murder series and then the series where he inserts himself as a sort of bungling um uh crime solver i i'm really enjoying like i mean they're quite light um kind of comic capers but they work really well and he's and you know he's always been good at writing a mystery so I I enjoy those a lot.
0: Now Foils War in my opinion you know it's not a book but I think Foils War is some of the best television ever going and I have enormous respect for Anthony Horowitz's many
1: creative ventures I mean he's really been extraordinary. I just wonder if he sleeps because I mean he's just so prolific and I think he wrote every Foils War episode which to me I mean those are some really good mysteries on a weekly I mean just really yeah, yeah. good stuff but a great show I'm I'm sure most yes, people the it. I think I watched it three times but let's not forget Midsummer Murders he wrote I know he started um, that too And yeah, he yeah. wrote
0: um at least two or three maybe more he wrote again wrote the the scripts Yeah yeah, yeah. You know, um and you know he's written children's books he's written a james bond book he's written you're right you know incredibly very good. he also has a very low boredom threshold
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: you know otherwise i mean he's not one to write the same
1: thing you know he yeah, writes, yeah no you know. he's good um he's very good at writing um uh not yeah like homogenous um, like his james bond books um What's amazing about them is they might as well have been rid of my Ian Fleming. They're very um, authentic feeling. He's very good at that. And he did a couple of uh, Sherlock Holmes as well. One called Moriarty and one called House of Silk, I think. And those are both. It
0: was House of Silk. That's the only time he actually has ever come to visit the store in person was okay. with House of Silk. And, you know, I I had a hard time, you know, keeping my chin up from, you know, being yeah. so odd. It was difficult to manage. But nonetheless. Yeah, he's great. Wonderful guy. All right, Jacob, another question.
2: All right. Do you perhaps have a favorite of all of the books you've written personally?
1: Um, I, I guess um, I
2: do. Keesler, I'm sorry. Uh,
1: um, I guess I do. I guess Eight Perfect Murders, and I think the reason it's my favorite is because, um, one, it was a unique book in the sense that it, the plot just came to me all kind of whole, Um, which never happened I just sort of had the idea for the story and I pretty much instantly knew how it would play out and how it would end and it never really changed from that initial inspiration but mostly because it's about um, reading and book selling and um, and really being a reader and I so I was able to get a lot about mysteries I love into it um, what it feels like to be a reader and I think for that reason it's that's kind of my favorite.
2: Uh, What part of the writing process do you find most difficult, personally?
1: Um, You know, it depends. I mean, uh, sometimes uh, writing a first draft, um, you know, the scariest thing is a writer like I am who tends to not plot out in advance. I have had a couple moments where I get halfway through a book and I'm painted myself into some sort of corner that I can't paint myself out of. And that is a very um, that can be a, a tough thing. And because of that, I have a couple half books in my drawer that didn't make it past the midpoint. Um, but in ge- but if that's going well, I love that process. Um, and, and the um, rewrites, um, you know, they They can be tough, too, but I, I I don't mind that. Um, I think it's I think it's getting stuck um on a story that you like and that you kind of can't get your way out of. Um, that that can be the the hardest part.
2: Have you ever taken one out of the drawer and got it published?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um sort of i i wrote nine lives initially was a novella that i wrote like sort of 30,000 words and i kind of was like "Eh." and and then i showed it to my agent and he said well this will work but you need to expand it and he had some good suggestions about where to expand it and that became sort of a drawer novel that came out but um I, i did pull one out the other day and i um was reading it through and wondering if i could sort of get back into it but uh didn't take i mean there's a reason they go into the drawer usually so yeah you hate to throw away that work but
0: maybe a few scenes can percolate out if not the entire thing
1: yeah um and you never know yeah maybe you'll come back to it but um i think it's just for me it's just part of the process and um you know if if uh but when it's going well i mean if i'm in the middle of a story and i know where it's going next and i feel decent about it that's you know it's a good feeling and i can get quite a bit of work done every day. So it's not like a draft takes me, you know, years. I'm not throwing away years of work. Um, I can really write a draft in about four months mm.
2: if things are going well, so. Um, do you have any uh, advice for young authors trying to get into writing of this particular genre?
1: I mean, you know, I, I'm sure it's the advice most people give, which is, um, I mean, first of all, read a ton in the genre. Um, don't just read the new stuff that comes along, read, go back to the golden age and read, you know, go go online and look at the 100 um, best mysteries. A couple of people have put together those lists of the 100 best mysteries and just start picking those out and reading them. Um, if you If you like the books, which you probably will, think about what, about that book you liked and if you don't like them, keep reading and then think about what you didn't like about it. Um, And then the second thing to do is to just start writing. Um, Don't wait for inspiration because it might never come. Just sit down and um, try and crank out, you know, I try and do a thousand words a day. Maybe maybe you do a hundred words a day. Um, But if you do it every day, um, you eventually get something and maybe you start with a short story. Maybe you write a book. and don't don't panic if it's terrible. I mean, you know it takes a while to to get better. But I mean, that's it. that That's all there is. There's no other trick. It's just, I think reading a lot and then writing a lot. and um and you know you do that, and uh, hopefully good things
2: will come.. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about your background before you became a writer um, and how you got
1: into writing in the first place? Well, I've always been a writer in the sense that when I, you know, I was a voracious reader as a kid and I, um, you know, probably wrote a little book about monsters when I was seven and my mom stapled it for me or whatever. I mean, I've always been putting together books, um, writing short stories, even in high school, writing poetry. Um, So in some ways, I feel like I was always a writer. In terms of um, a professional writer, a published writer and someone who makes their living off of it. I think I was around 35 and um, and I, it was that age, you know, I was fairly old when I wrote my first book and finished it um, and it was a It that was not published. It was my fourth completed novel that was published. Again, like I just said, just keep writing because um, there's probably a reason that first one didn't get published. Um, but, you know, I knew when I wrote a book So that was a big day for me. I mean, there were two big days in my publishing career. One was when I got the deal um, that I knew my book would be published. Um, The other day I think was the day I finished that first novel and got to the end. It was so exciting because I realized I could do it. I could write a novel, whether it was good or bad was besides the point at that point. It was that I had written a beginning, middle, and end in 300 pages and it just felt so exciting. And I realized that that was my favorite Like, I definitely knew I wanted to be a novelist then. Like that, I prefer that um, writing a big story to writing a short story or writing poetry. Um, And, you know, I haven't turned back. So I was very fortunate that my fourth novel was published. And I'm incredibly fortunate that my ninth novel got published uh, two days ago.
0: It did indeed. Yay. Any more, Jim? That's it. Well, I have a question that came up last night, which I'm now going to adopt because I think it was so very clever. I want to recommend a book to you, a debut called The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. Oh,
1: yeah, I met her. She, um, It's about food.
0: Well, it's not what you think it is. Okay. Let me put it that way. It really is not what you think it is. So I definitely recommend you read it. But anyway, someone in the audience asked the question of either Jessa or A.G. Riddle. I can't remember. We had them both together. Um, so who would you, it's, it's not really quite the New York times question, who, what author would you invite out to dinner and where would you take them? What restaurant would you take them to? Are they, um, dead or alive or? I don't know that it matters.
1: Okay. Um, well, I mean, if, 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 if it's, um, an author in history, um, I would go oddly with John D. McDonald, because I loved his books growing up, his Travis McGee novels. Um, I love them. And I would take him to, um, I live on the North Shore here in Massachusetts. No, I would take him to, um, what's it called? Keene's Chop House in New York City. I love that place. Um, it ha- It's like a Victorian era steakhouse where you can get a, um, I th- the only place that I know of in America where you can get a mutton chop. I think he'd appreciate that. Wonderful.
0: I love this question. It's so interesting. Once you get started, however, you did have a new wrinkle in it, which does it, can he be dead? <laughs> we were looking really at live authors because,
1: um, you know, that meant our current restaurant, but if he's hey. alive. I'll say Anthony Horowitz, who I have um, spoken to on Zoom, but not met in person, but, um, I, you know, I would find him very entertaining to talk to because um, not only does he write good mysteries, you he know, he, he knows his uh history of you know you could talk mystery novels with him all night
0: so it would depend on where you were if you were in london you might want to take him to the ivy if you were in new york or boston i'm not sure where you'd take him
1: yes i you know again if i were in um new york i'll go keen's chop house um in boston i'll think of a good seafood restaurant
0: right of which there are many I mean that was the key thing about Spencer's you know you always had to I love the I love the food factor so if you're going to write more private eye novels you might want to think about the food factor I love the food factor in his book right (laughs) give Henry give Henry a restaurant there you go (laughs) you know perfect a great way to end this so thank you Peter always a pleasure to speak to you again let me remind you the kind we're saving Uh, We have autographed copies. We don't have any of the kind worth killing because it's quite a few years old, but it's still out in paperback, so you can get one of those. Anyway, um, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your publication week. Good night. All right.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks,
0: Jacob. Mm -hmm. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.